There we go. Can you hear me? Up a little higher. Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's our last Sunday of the quarter, and um, I plan to do a kind of a quarter review. And as I got started doing that, I thought <laughs> way too much material <laughs> to do it in a correct way. So I really uh, decided to kind of pick out three classes that I think are informative to me and so I'm just going to review those three this morning um, they say if you've listened to a sermon a week later you remember about 5% of that um, so I'm thinking if I repeat this again some of this stuff uh, information again today that maybe f- after we get out of here be a little bit more than 5%. <laughs> so, um, the first class we had was on the geography, and I don't know if all of you were here or not, but uh, we covered the geography of Israel. Um, places in this world are, are different. The people are different, the beliefs are different, the values are different. And although people don't think much of it, the land we live on, of the earth we stand on, uh, plays a significant role in our values, cultural values. Um, what we find we are able to track back to the first century Judea, how would it be if we walked where Jesus walked? we were there, we wouldn't understand the language, understand the people of that day, or really the customs that would be pretty foreign to us. Um, might seem like a poor place compared to where we live. They have no technology. They had a completely different way of life and a different way of think, thinking and existence. So here in Alaska, we are a bit different, even from places in the lower 48. We have a different history, a different background different way of life this land is huge the snow is deep the weather is cold (laughs) as you can tell this morning people here are independent many live in remote locations their lives are different some live by subsistence any day even in Anchorage you can walk outside and run into a moose or even a bear flying around Alaska you can you can fly for hours and not see any evidence of human existence. Alaska is a different place. Yet, as we read through the Word of God, it speaks to us just as it did to the people of that day back then. What did the first century Jews hear when Jesus spoke? We all see and understand the words of God through our own experiences and our own beliefs. So throughout this quarter, we've looked at ways to better understand the culture of the first century, um, at the time of Christ. So that's uh, so that the words and the stories we find in the Bible may have greater meaning and relevance, uh, relevance to us. So our first class we talked about the geography of Israel. And we often look in the back of our books at these maps. Um, 
kind of a, I'm kind of a map person. Ninety um, percent of the Bible takes place right here on this stage that we call the land of Israel. The wilderness wanderings, Egyptian bondage, and missionary journeys of Paul are the only things, only accounts in the Bible that do not take place here. So far and away, the rest of the Bible takes place in this land, the land of Israel. Um, a scholar named Barnell Pitchner once called the land of Israel the fifth gospel, emphasizing the importance of the land to geography and understanding the stories of the Bible. We have a problem because Israel's way on the other side of the world, conceptualizing how big is this country? If I could get my clicker to work, which it's not. Um, okay. Uh, Israel's a very small country. It's about the same size as the state of New Jersey. Alaska is... 76 times the size of New Jersey and Israel. So 76... There we go. 76 of these... Uh, of um, New Jersey could fit inside the state of Alaska. Here's a uh, topography map of Israel. An F-16 fighter pilot can fly to the extreme north part of the country to the extreme south in about 15 minutes. They could fly the width of this country in less than 45 seconds yet. There are some features here, as we look at this, um, this small country that are truly unique in all the world. Elevation, for instance. This is a picture of Mount Hermon uh, near the Sea of Galilee. It rises more than 9,000 feet above sea level. It's snow-capped most of the year. Less than 100 miles south is the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea sits... 1,412 feet below sea level, the lowest place on earth where you can breathe air. So in this little country called Israel um, is one of the lowest places on earth. It's the lowest places on earth. Um, we have a cross section here and you can kind of see the topography. On the left side is the Mediterranean Sea and then the topography cross section right across Jerusalem and you can see that Jericho and the, sea of Gal uh, the, the Dead Sea are below sea level. And because of this, there's a numerous amount of ecological zones, which uh, if you travel to Israel, which means it's dry, it's wet, it's hot, it's cold, all at the same time in this little small country they call Israel. Um, also, if you're familiar with ecology, uh, this causes a rain shadow. You know what a rain shadow is. Uh, the weather starts over here on the Mediterranean, flows this way, hits this, these hills here, drops most of its rain here, and then goes over the top, and this is the dry, arid region we're going to look at in a minute. If we divide up the country like this, it helps us understand the different climates. Uh, the east side, over here, these two quadrants, these two quadrants on this side are going to be very moist, or rather moist, and this side is going to be very dry. So desert over here, cropland over here. Uh, 
as you can see by this amount of rainfall, top left, um, the quadrant is the wettest part of the country, gets 40 to 60 inches of rain a year. This is a place where crops are grown. It takes 11 inches a year to get a crop, so crops are grown in the northwest corner. Um, the south, uh, the southwest corner is more used for some crops, but uh, uh, growing sheep and livestock. Uh, in the Bible, we find stories in the top left corner. Uh, if you recall, in the book of Judges, where uh, Samson tied 300 fox together and let them loose in the grain fields of the Philistines. Also in this area, you recall Jesus walked through the grain fields with his disciples and what happened as they were picking grain, the Pharisees caught them uh, breaking the Sabbath. Also the parable of the sower was taught up in this region. So as we see in, in the stories that play out in the Bible, that these different stories um, are critical to the sections of Israel Jesus is teaching in. He uses his knowledge of the air to tell parables and lessons to the people, and um, and the people will understand them. So southwest, I talked about the southwest corner here, uh, about 8 to 20 inches of rain. They grow grain here, but it's much drier, so it's much more adaptable to uh, raising sheep. Um, if you call in First Samuel, Samuel travels to where Bethlehem. Bethlehem is, is in this area here, where he finds David, and he anoints David as king, and David can't be found at the beginning. What is he out doing? He's out tending sheep. Also, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and the sh shepherds nearby came uh, and worshipped him. Also, this is the area where Jesus taught I am the Good Shepherd from John 10. So on the right stage, we talked about the desert. Uh, this is the land of the Ites, all the Hittites and Jebusites lived over in this area. Um, life over there is unpredictable. Um, you never know how much water you're going to get. Uh, you won't be planting a crop. Life is silent and lonely. Um, it's exhaustive over there. Left stage, the left side, is predictable. 46 inches of rain. Um, you get a crop. The question is not how much of a crop, but how much are you going to, to uh, gain. As you recall, Jesus tells a parable about a crop resulting in 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold. So you also might remember uh, the parable of the man who asked himself, if he should tear down his barns and build bigger barns to fill them with grain. So that's what's happening over on this side uh, of Israel. Um, life is busy and noisy. On the left side, uh, the Bible talks about up to 353 towns and cities are mentioned in the Bible that come from this side of Israel. As you recall, uh, not only were you working to grow crops, but also the Sea of Galilee is in this part of the, this part of the region. Um, you would you'd be able to um, work and make a profit. As you recall, uh, when Jesus called James and John, their father left uh, their dad Zebedee and what he the hired men. So uh, wealth is much more prevalent in this part of Israel.
But to the east, not so. The desert, the dry places, the nomadic life is where Jesus went to be tempted. He went to the desert. So vegetation, animals, geography are all key to each of these regions, and they're all each unique. So too are the building materials and the homes of Israel. Now, we talked about Jesus' profession before. Jesus was a carpenter. Um, the actual word is tecton. He was a builder, a craftsman, a construction worker. You look at these homes, how much wood do you see? Not very much. Nazareth was about three miles from Sephoris, where most construction is of stone. Uh, Jesus was a builder. What do you think of when you think of a construction worker? These are not weak people. They are physical people. So Jesus was not weak. He was a fit person. When he cleansed the temple of the money changers, that was a physical act, an act where Jesus, because of his life work, had no problem making that happen. Also in this region are bodies of water, easy to remember, the med, the red, the dead, and the Sea of Galilee. Um, not a lot of stories about the Mediterranean or the Red Sea, but uh, the Dead Sea is central to this region. Um, many of you may have been to Salt Lake, Salt Lake City, or that area. The salinity there is 11%. The Dead Sea here is 32% salinity. Uh, it's really more the dead sludge. The water is very heavy, smelly. It's been known for centuries to have healing properties, a very popular tourist destination. And once again, it's the lowest elevation lake in the world, 1,400 feet below sea level. Sea of Galilee, completely different. Sea of Galilee is a beautiful body of water. It's the only freshwater lake in the world below sea level. It's 690 feet below sea level. It has 23 types of fish that are native to the lake. It's 12 miles long and 7 miles wide. You can stand on the, on the west side, look across the lake, and you see cars driving on the other side. That's how large it is. Uh, also at this location, there are hills associated with that with high winds that cause uh, white caps on the lake uh, during certain seasons of the year. Um, the lake is called also Kinetarit, which means heart-shaped. One thing we talked about in one of the classes that the ministry of Jesus, about 80% of his time focuses around this area of Capernaum, Bethsaida, just right up here, and Chorazin. 80% of his time is spent there. Matthew 12, um, 14, 12, after Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he returned and made his home in Capernaum.
Now, the Bible doesn't talk about all the associated countries around Israel, but look at this map. Israel, Israel as it is, is a very small place compared to this part of the world. But it holds some really key features. And that is trade routes. You can look at the trade routes here. A lot of them end up crossing right here in the land of Israel. In fact, two major two major trade routes, one called the Via Maris, the Way of the Sea, um, it's an international superhighway through this area, drop down from Damascus across the top of the Sea of Galilee, down through Megiddo, and down along the Mediterranean. Um, if you wanted to touch the world, and one of the best places to do that would be in Capernaum, which was right, uh, which this passed right through, which Jesus made his home. In other classes, we talked about honor and shame and how important that was to Jewish society. It's very important to understand the culture of the time of Jesus because it was so different than ours. Hard Hard for us to understand. We don't frequently use these terms anymore, honor and shame. The biblical world is so different than our American culture, so we constantly need to remind ourselves that life centers around the cultural value of honor and shame in Jesus' time. Our culture, we're individuals. We're not connected because we have independence. We value independence. We are interdirected from goals we set for ourselves. We are told that we need to reach, to achieve, to become more, and we need to be all you can be. That's what we think. We, uh, if we achieve, we have pride. If we don't achieve, we don't reach goals, we have guilt or remorse. We're driven by guilt to do better next time. In the biblical world, it's completely different. Those individuals were interconnected. The smallest social unit was the family, not the individual. We are interdirected, they are outer-directed, more important what other people think about them than we believe in our society. Other people's opinion affects their attitudes, their behavior. They want family, extended family, village, country, depends on the situation. They want the interpersonal relationships to work, not goal-oriented. The driving force for us is guilt. If we don't achieve, to them it is shame. And we don't understand shame nearly as well as we should. Um, person's claim to a certain standing plus public validation is what I may claim to have a certain role in standing, but it must be publicly validated to be worth anything. So there's, there's two kinds of honor. There are ascribed honor, inherited honor. We uh, know that uh, in first part of Matthew, uh, the lineage of Jesus uh, is critical to what uh, honor he has. Um, Ascribed honor uh, is very important in the biblical world. If you could trace your lineage back to Isaiah, that would give you a certain amount of honor, as well as recalling the first part of Matthew, where Jesus uh, tra- uh, traces back Jesus back to David, gives Jesus a certain level of honor, 
of status. The other is achieved honor. Everyone is in constant struggle in that society to keep the level of honor they have. If you defend your honor, you have achieved honor. If not, then you have lost honor or have been shamed. For us Americans on this side, how do we win? We compare our stuff. If I can have more goods than you, if I can have a better uh, vacation than you, uh, if I can send my children to a better school than you, then I am one up on you. I have... I'm better than you in some way. But in the biblical side, uh, that's not how it works. They believe that there's a limited amount of goods. There's not enough to compare. Um, That's not a good standard. Because of their interconnectedness, the way you get bragging rights is in a matter of if I can get honor from you ascribed to me. Now, we don't understand that very well. Honor begins on the inside of my claim what I say I am and then is validated by the outside of other people. Shame starts on the outside and moves to the inside when someone denies my claim. When I realize I wasn't honored, therefore I am shamed. We read in Proverbs, um, we read in Proverbs uh, is a guide to life in the culture of that day and shows them how to live honorably, uh, especially in the first few chapters of Sol- uh, where Solomon is talking to his son in the first nine chapters where Solomon is talking about wisdom. Uh, chapter 313 says, Riches and honor, he is talking about wisdom. Verse 35, The wise inherit honor, but fools will be held up to shame. People who live according to the societal acceptance norms are to be honored. So those people say what other people say doesn't matter. People are going to say, look how those people live. They won't be accepted. They won't be honored by their people. Uh, Proverbs 4.8, cherish wisdom and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honor you. If you pursue wisdom, this collection of cultural insights, then you will live by those. You will be honored by society. So Solomon says to his son, get wisdom. Pursue wisdom. Tells you how you should live so you will be validated in the community. A lot of things in Proverbs discusses the topics of honor and shame. Humility is accepting and living in your status. In our culture, we strive to move higher, to gain status. But in the biblical world culture, you might be down there as a beggar, or you might be up here as a prince, or somewhere in between. It is honorable to be a beggar. And you're born into a beggar family. That is honorable. What is dishonorable is to try to live above the level you were born to. In that culture, you, say, you stay on the level you were born into, and humility is accepting that. Accepting that level and not lord it over other people on your level. So in the ministry of Jesus, Mediterranean culture is what's called um, antagonistic. In our society, uh, 
you're constantly trying to steal honor. In that society, you're trying, constantly trying to steal honor from someone else, to look better than someone else. Uh, we can see this in Jesus' life. This is not how we live, but that's how they lived in the first century. <clears throat> and a lot of this is done with questions. When we ask about this, we think of someone innocently wanting information, right? In the Mediterranean world, questions were seldom neutral. Most questions have some kind of honor-shame issue around them. I can ask you a question that when you respond makes you look good. Most questions are negative. Most of the time, I'm trying to ask a question that you can't answer. And when you can't answer, you look bad and I look better. So I'm one up in my honor, and you're down in your honor. If we are in the public setting and I can put you on the spot, then I can take honor from you before the people. It's the way the game is played. So we can see this in Jesus' ministry many, many times. Um, Matthew 21, 23, Jesus enters the temple's courts and while he is teaching, the chief priests and elders and the people and the people came to him, and they asked, "By what authority are you doing these things?" They asked, "And who gave you this authority? Who gave you this authority?" Do you think they really wanted to know? They were trying to embarrass him. They wanted the crowds to respect them, the Pharisees, more than they respected Jesus. Matthew 22:15 When the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him by his words they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians teacher they said we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are tell us then what is your opinion is it right to pay taxes to the to Caesar or not but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used to pay taxes. They brought him a denarii and, said, and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Pharisees, they went away. The Pharisees planned to trap Jesus. Jesus paying taxes to Caesar. Do you think they really cared? They just wanted to trap him so that the people wouldn't honor him anymore, so that people wouldn't follow him. He knows this about all this honor and shame. Another one, Matthew 22, 23. Um, the Sadducees questioned about resurrection. Uh, that believing in the resurrection was stupid. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They see Jesus as what? A carpenter, a builder, a tecton. He was trying to act like a rabbi. He wasn't doing the honorable thing. He wasn't being, uh, he didn't have humility. He was, uh, he was trying to raise above the status where he was born to. And they were going to humiliate him. They were going to shame him. They feel he's getting honor he doesn't deserve. 
and they're going to take honor away from him by asking him these tough questions. The problem is that he's answering them and taking honor away from them, and the people are believing in Jesus. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, he said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry uh, the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among them. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife and his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now when at the resurrections, whose wife will she be? of the seven since all of them had her who had married her. Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor give in into marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that God said to you, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob. He's not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus was taking honor away from the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. All these questions, these attacks on his life of Christ were a purpose to humiliate him, to shame him, to take honor away from him so that people wouldn't respect him, so that people wouldn't follow him. When none of these questions worked, they did what? They executed him. And how did they execute him? Now the Jews crucified Jesus on a Roman cross, the most humiliating death the Romans had. It was humiliating because it was done in the nude or close to the nude. The person, uh, if you look back at Jesus' trial and the abuse he took, it was all to do one thing, to shame him so that the people wouldn't follow him, to rob him of his honor. Philippians 2 said, uh, in Philippians 2 it says, Jesus humbled himself, taking on a shameful death for us, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So when we read through the Bible, now we hopefully, you will hopefully notice how honor and shame played such a big role in this society. What did John say when he saw Jesus coming to be baptized? Behold the Lamb of God, and a voice from heaven says, This is my beast. Beloved Son, public validation of Jesus as God's Son. Another lesson we talked about was the Sabbath. And one of the main stories about the Sabbath comes from John 5, uh, starting in verse 1. And sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate Pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. Bethesda. 
and, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the parrot, Paris, um, excuse me, the paralyzed, and one who was there who had been in invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? So the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And then once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Now, on the day which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. So the tradition was that when the waters churned in this pool, the spring uh, became, the water would flow up from the earth, and from time to time, when the water would be moved, an angel of the Lord came down and healed the first person that got in the water after it was stirred. This was pretty, a pretty old and secure tradition from that site. Now, we are familiar with this name, Bethesda. Bethesda, hopefully many of you recognize Bethesda, Maryland is where the famous military hospital is located. So Jesus says to the man, Rise up, take your pallet, and walk. And at once the man was healed, he took up his pallet and walked. Now the day was the Sabbath. So something to note here. Jesus went to the pool where a number of sick and invalids lay. How many sick people are around the pool? Verse said, verse 3 says, a multitude. How many people did Jesus heal? He healed just one. Don't know what we make of that. You and me are different. God may do something or have something in mind for me that he does not have for you. God has an eternal purpose for both of us. And it's not the same purpose. Like the Apostle Paul, when those we know are not healed, we should have this attitude where he said that God's grace wasn't efficient for him. So Jesus said, take up your mat and walk. Now the day was the Sabbath. So verse 10 says, so the Jews said to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you for carrying your mat. Now, what law are they talking about? The law of the Pharisees was the Torah, the first five books of Moses, which includes the commands, but also stories and narrative. So the Jews said, hey, this is the Sabbath, and the Torah forbids you to carry your mat. So what does the Torah say? Exodus 20, 8-11. 
Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor animals, nor any foreign residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed this Sabbath day and made it holy. So keeping the Sabbath was very important to the Pharisees. It was one of the four areas that they really focused on. And why was this? Because many of their ancestors had died trying to keep the law, trying to keep the Sabbath. How would you have felt knowing that your ancestors died keeping the Sabbath? And here this man Jesus comes along and saying that following the Sabbath is not important, or at least that's how they perceived it. So, the very word Sabbath means rest. The purpose was the day that God set up for renewal, for restoration, for a break from the ordinary. God says, six days you will do your work, on the seventh will be holy. It will be separate. Six days you will do your work, on the seventh you will take a break. It will be a time for renewal, for restoration. It will be time for your body and your mind to heal. It was a blessing. So how can the Pharisees say that the law says not to carry your mat? We also talked about the Pharisees. For the Pharisees, there were two Torahs. The first one, the written, the five books of Moses, and the second was the oral Torah. They believed the oral Torah was given to Moses, passed down from generation to generation, orally, so it was not written down. So how do we know what the oral law says? what the oral law says about the Sabbath. Well, after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, the Pharisees still tried to keep the religion alive. They still practiced as best they could to keep the law. They continued to memorize and pass down the oral law. But at one point, the oral law became so large and almost impossible to memorize that in A.D. 200, a Pharisee named Judah Hanasi wrote it down. The result is 18 volumes of writings called the Mishnah, and the Mishnah with his commentaries called the Talmud. You can order the entire Talmud today, all 18 volumes, and see what the Oral Law said, what they had memorized almost 2,000 years ago. The Pharisees believed the oral law was equally as binding as the written Torah. In the Mishnah, one of the books says, these traditions, these teachings, these instructions, oral law were handed down to Moses, to Joshua, to Ezra, to us. They believed that the oral law was given at Mount Sinai along with the written laws, Were they? 
That's what their tradition says. They say these are not something we've drummed up, but something was given us by God. Exodus 20 basically said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But the Pharisees asked themselves, what is work? What does it mean? What constitutes work? So the rabbis sat down and argued and discussed the text. What is work? What can we do and not do? And in the Talmud, after long discussions, they decided that work, or what God meant when he said work, that there were 39 categories of work. I've read these to you before. And under each 39 categories, so that when they decided what work was, they knew exactly what constituted work on the Sabbath. So when Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always working to this very day, and I am working too. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his father, making himself equal with God. My father. Jesus said, My father is working, and I am working too. You know what teed them off about all this? Was that Jesus called God his Father. Psalms 89, 26. There's only one reference in the Old Testament where God is referred to as my Father. Every other time, it's our Father. The Jews would not even speak the name of God. The rabbi said the only one who can call God my Father would be the Messiah. Psalms, uh, Psalms 89.26 is a predictive statement that the Messiah, when he comes, will, be, will call God my Father. So Jesus calls God my, my Father, and that blows them away. Why? Because he lives up in Galilee. He lives up in the sticks. Everyone knows that the great rabbis come from Jerusalem, right? From Judea. We all know that no prophet comes from Galilee. So they, being, so they being with the assumption that Jesus cannot be the Messiah, that he comes from the wrong side of the tracks up in Galilee, and besides that, he's what? He's a tecton. He's a carpenter. He's just a builder. He has no schooling. Therefore, when he calls God my father, he must be a liar. He must be a fraud. Jesus said, you know why I healed this guy? Because the purpose of Sabbath is to bring renewal, to bring restoration, to bring healing to a man's life. Did healing of this man bring restoration to his life? Absolutely. He, Jesus, was fulfilling the purpose of my father. The reason that my father gave the Sabbath command was so that there would be renewal, restoration, healing to people. To be a blessing. That is why Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. He was following the purpose of the Sabbath. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along and they began picking heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And when he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So what did Jesus mean? He is 
he is Lord even of the Sabbath. We've read this many times. An example of this might be this. We've seen a funeral procession directed by policemen to stop people as they go through traffic. Jesus was with God when the Sabbath was instituted. A policeman is Lord over the stop sign, meaning a policeman has a brain and knows how traffic should be conducted, and so he is better than the stop sign. So as Jesus knows that the purpose of the Sabbath is for, he comes healing on the Sabbath. He is doing it because that's what Sabbath was for. Rest, healing, restoration. He appears to be breaking the Sabbath in his mind but the, of the Pharisees, but he's fulfilling it. The Sabbath was to be a blessing on his people, not a law to be followed. Got to speed up here because we're coming into the end of our class. There's another time where he heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Jesus looked around them in anger at their stubborn, stubborn hearts. That one, That is one look that none of us really want to see. These religious leaders had decided that the healing was against the rules, right? Healing this man's hand on the Sabbath that they sought to kill Jesus. We see the Pharisees took a blessing of God that he intended for his people and made it a burden. They looked on this man with a withered hand and Jesus, not even considering that healing would do for his life because they were sure that he had sinned by healing on the Sabbath. So when we see Jesus' approach to the Sabbath, we need to focus on the purpose of what God has us to do. We need to make sure we don't take the grace of something God has given us and make it a burden, a law. That's what the Pharisees did. We need to ask ourselves, every time we see a command of God, what does God want me to do? What is the objective of this teaching? What does God want us to know? Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I came to bring life. I came to bring renewal. I came to bring restoration to the people. And that's what Sabbath was for. I've enjoyed this uh, quarter. Um, I know many times you guys ask me questions, and I'd be happy to um, provide any resources that um, of some of my lessons that you might be interested in. I had one uh, class where I talked about all the resources that I've used, some of the books I've used, and some of the resources I've used. So um, appreciate your attendance and appreciate your questions. Um, Thank you very much. Dismissed.